progressive ideas, conversations from schools, and the newest concepts in education. This is the School Leadership Podcast. A lot of speech, language, and communication needs are about changing the adults around the child rather than changing the child. The head teacher at the level of the school needs access not only to generic speech and language therapy, but also to the relevant specialism behind that. Two perspectives on children's speech and language from our two guests who have some stark, informative and at points uplifting opinions and examples around this very pivotal subject. Hello and a very warm welcome to the School Leadership Podcast with NAHT and NAHT Edge. Just what kind of effect have the various lockdowns had on children? Where do the new challenges lie and how much of a variance is there in the provision of speech and language therapists across the country? This is the podcast that holds answers to those and all the key questions on this subject. A little before we hear from one of the therapists who goes into schools and is very much at the coalface of this, let's bring you the conversation between James Bowen and Derek Munn of the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists. Delighted to be here. We strongly value the work we've done through the years with the NAHT. Um, the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists is the professional body for SLTs. We're not the trade union. Um, and there are about 18,000 speech and language therapists across the UK. I think people are sometimes surprised at the diversity. So we do the whole of the life course from antenatal actually and immediately post-birth issues, for example, with tongue tie, right through at the other end of the life course to end of life palliative and issues to do with dementia. And then from general universal issues around deprivation and disadvantage, to very acute working in intensive care, um, even a specialism in what's called um, waking brain surgery and the justice sector. So huge range, over 30 clinical specialisms. But broadly speaking, about 60% of speech and language therapists work with children, about 40% with adults. Within that 60%, you've got a section who are working in primary and to a lesser extent, secondary school contexts. My own role as Director of Public Affairs is the, the external, the, um, the politics, um, and my own professional background is partly in linguistics and then partly in politics, which is why it's a match for me, um, and also the work the organisation does with people with lived experience of speech, language, communication, and swallowing needs, is actually we also look after swallowing, because if you think about it, it's the same anatomy and physiology. So broadly, I'm the external affairs guy. And I, mean, I know I'm only the second question in and I'm already going to talk about COVID, but I think we have to. Uh, I, I, obviously, the last sort of 12 to 14 months have had a, had a huge impact on everybody uh, in schools. But I'm conscious it would have had an impact on, on your members and, and the work they are able to do with schools. So how has the last sort of year or so been for your members and how, how has it affected the work uh, they've been able to do with schools? Yeah, and, and it's fascinating, and I know the same will be true for head teachers now, that we can think back over a year to, to, to when all this began. And by definition, none of us have lived through a pandemic before. So there's an extent to which we were doing things on the hoof. Um, initially, of course, most speech and language therapists who would work in schools in the early years settings couldn't do it because they were closed. 
and we had to rethink what you could do. So there was an immediate shift to offering support to families by telephone and online. Um, there was also, though, for that majority of speech and language therapists who work for the NHS, sometimes were being redeployed. You know, in the context of the pandemic, people were being asked to work as healthcare assistants in intensive care. People were being moved from children therapy into adult therapy. People were being asked to work as fit testers for the FFP3 masks, all sorts of things. So there were less people there to do the children's support. Now, since the autumn and the, the, the easing of the, the first lockdown, many members have been able to return to seeing children face to face. Um, but there's been an ongoing challenge, I think, around the guidance for health professionals, as opposed to the guidance for schools, when it comes to protective equipment. Um, and we've said to, to, to speech therapists, you need to have open conversations with the schools. We're operating with different bubbles, we're operating with different environments, we're operating sometimes with different sets of professional guidance. So keep that conversation open, but we'd be delighted that the way that most head teachers have welcomed speech and language therapists back into schools where that's necessary and appropriate. And I imagine we'll talk later about telehealth and group working and the extent to which things may change in future provision. And how frustrating it has it been for speech and language therapists to, to have that work disrupted in that way? I mean, I know, you know we speak to schools and I know they've been frustrated that, you know, the speech and language therapy hasn't always been able to carry on or not carried on the way it has before because the reasons you've described. But I guess it must be frustrating for your members as well who aren't able to go into to schools and do that work or have had to try and do it in a very different way. Are you getting that feedback from your members? Yeah, and, and again, this will be common to head teachers. I mean, this is a vocation as well as a job, and speech and language therapists are passionate about what they do, and particularly where you know if there's an existing relationship with the child or the family, very concerned about about what the the impact might be. Quite apart from those children who might get missed in the interim. So yes, there there was a great urgency, and we had, you know, as a profession, we had members working in adult intensive care, working 18-hour days on the front line in situations of great stress and pressure. And then we had children's speech and language therapists sitting at home going, I want to get back to this. There are children who need support. When can I get back? And the contrast between the two was also a professional challenge. And I think it's fair to say, I'm making an assumption here, but I'd be surprised if you disagree that uh, speech and language therapy services have been under pressure now for many years and, and that predates COVID and again I know that uh, school leaders we speak to will say you know at times it's very hard to, to access uh, speech and language therapists and they'd, they'd, they'd want more and more in their school and it's almost that the, you know the, the demand can't be met and I is that borne out just through years and years of uh, is it a lack of funding from government or what, what would you say that are there long-term issues at play here? Uh, there certainly are, and some of the, the challenges around social disadvantage and deprivation that we've seen through the COVID-19 pandemic have to be, frank, exacerbated pre-existing issues rather than creating new ones. Um, obviously, it's complex, particularly in England, where you know, head teachers in many cases have their own budget to spend and need to know what to spend it on, and we, we can come back to that. Um, but it, just the raw availability, because, of course, you've got demand and you've got need. And health economists 
uh, as I understand it, uses differently in terms of what can you do with the budget that's available? What could you do if money were no object? And where can you go between those two things? Variation is the issue. We found this ourselves. We did a national report in 2018, 10 years on from the original John Burkow report into children's speech, language and communication. And at that time, respondents, which included professionals and parents, only 15% across um, the country at that time felt that speech and language therapy was available as it should be, as it was required. We always go, we don't just believe us though. So the previous Children's Commissioner for England followed this up with a review in 2019 and very comprehensive. And what she said, look, you know, you, the phrase postcode lottery gets used a lot, but actually across England, the bottom 25% of areas were spending 58 pence per child on speech and language therapy. And the top 25% were spending 16 pounds per child on speech and language therapy. Now that level of variation, particularly when it doesn't appear to be associated with deprivation, can only be random. Um, and obviously a conservative government by nature doesn't want to impose from the center or it used to. But when you've got that level of dis disproportionate disadvantage in funding and provision, somebody's got to say, look, this is what is needed. I mean, that, that's quite shocking, is it? I had no idea that the differences were, were so huge as that. I'm, I'm just trying to get my head around. How, how can it be that in some parts of the country we're spending, I think you said something like 60 pence under a pound and other parts 16 pounds. I, how, how on earth have we got to that position? That just seems a staggering difference to me. Yes, I mean, and what strikes me is, you know, we, we, we did a, a recent survey, which we may come on to, and, you know, Within three days, 82 national organisations agreed to co-sign a letter to the Prime Minister about the importance of children's language. Now, you know, I work as a, a lobbyist, an influencer. Um, every, every lobbying group is going to say our, uh, our issue is the most important one. But actually, the fact that 82 national organisations from all sorts of sectors within a 72-hour period agreed to co-sign a letter to the Prime Minister saying... This is why children's language is foundational. We also know, as you mentioned, that parents and head teachers go, speech and language therapy is something that's needed. Yet when it comes to budget setting and the hard austerity cut decisions, it seems to be too easy to see speech and language therapy as an add-on or a nice to have. And that's the challenge is to, to make the, the budget and policy priority match the identified need and demand. Mm. And you talked a little bit there about uh, some recent research uh, you've done, and I'd be really interested because I think the research, if I've understood it correctly, looks at sort of the impact of the last 12 months on children's access uh, to speech and language therapy. So interested to know what your findings were. Certainly. So uh, over 400, mainly parents, uh, in some cases carers, in a few cases young people themselves, who were on the books of speech and language therapy last spring, responded to say, look, this was our experience of speech and language therapy during lockdown and, and after. Now, to some extent, that's a historic moment in time, but we think it's helpful to be able to learn from that experience about what, what, what does it feel like to be a child or a parent with speech and language problems in that context. 
Um, the vast majority, as you would accept, expect, said they received less or no speech and language therapy. Um, but there were a couple of things alongside that, three things. One is that people were most concerned about communication. Everybody understood that last spring was an exceptional time. What people found challenging was if they felt that they just didn't know what was going on, that they didn't feel communication was effective. The second thing is the, the move towards um, telephone, but in particular, video, remote working telehealth. Um, and that is really a mixed picture because for some children and families, that works really well. Um, and that may be to do, you know, and you've only got to imagine, and I, you know, I'm going to generalize horribly here, but let's say you've got a supportive parental environment, you've got a strong broadband connection, you've got time and space in the home. Well, actually, the, the telehealth can work really well. Let's contrast that with lots of siblings in a house, perhaps a week or um, less, you know, less expensive internet connection, uh, a less quiet and amenable learning environment, then telehealth is not going to work. But also you've then got the difference in different, the nature of the different conditions that people can have vary because, you know, I mentioned earlier about the, the range of things that we work with. But if you think across everything from language disorder through um, um, autism spectrum, through learning disability, through cerebral palsy, through mental health, through the, the sheer range of different challenges that a child might face, then some of those interventions are going to work remotely and some of them aren't. And that, again, is going to be part of the challenge moving forward. What um, parents and young people said to us was that, as you might expect, the biggest single impact they felt from the reduction in speech and language therapy was to their education. But they also mentioned social life and friendships, and they also mentioned mental health to quite a high degree. So given, you know, we've talked about the long-standing challenges, we've talked a little bit about the kind of the challenges of, of the last 14 months and how that's affected uh, the ability to deliver speech and language therapy. What needs to happen now? You know, is there a, do we, do we need an urgent plan really to address this and to get things back on track? Or am I over-dramatising that, do you think? Um, I, I, an urgent plan would be good. I mean, we know that everyone, everyone is focused within the NHS and the, in the education sector on recovery, on, on recovery plans. Um, so it's about making sure that children and young people's language has its place in that. And the um, Education Endowment Foundation report, we've got quite big coverage yesterday, was a help in, in raising that agenda. Yesterday, as we record this, I should say, then. The, um, you know, the link up between education and health is critical to this, that you know, children's language can be bedeviled by the failure to jointly commission and jointly plan on the education side and the health side and making that happen. And I was fortunate enough to meet the, um, the UK Children's Minister, Vicky Ford, last week and was able to make this point directly to her. Um, you know, the recovery premium that schools are being given may be helpful. And we've given a note to speech and language therapists to say, look, here's what the recovery premium is for. Here's some of the ways that you may be able to be a help to head teachers in their own recovery. Um, so it will be national. It will also be local um, in terms of local by, by which I mean level, the level of the local system in trying to make sure that health and education come together to think about what's needed going forward. 
it's really interesting you mentioned that it feels to me like for a long time now there's been that challenge of the relationship between the education sector and the health sector and it I suppose to be frank, it feels like it hasn't quite worked. That that partnership hasn't been as strong as it could be for whatever reason, and and that that joint working, which was the big vision, I guess, when we had education and healthcare plans, that there would be a real sort of close coming together. Just in lots of cases, hasn't materialised. And I know I'm generalising now. I'm sure in some cases it has. But do you have any thoughts around that? Are there are there things we can do to help kind of bring that partnership between health and education closer together? Yeah, it's about expectation. So. The, the NHS in England is undergoing yet another reform. What are called integrated care systems, which are already developing, are going to be put in a statutory form. There's an expectation that there is planning for the whole of the, the health economy. The level of the ICS is probably broadly the level of a county or the level of a borough. And that's quite a good population to plan, actually, for speech and language therapy for certain conditions like... Um, you know, complex stammering or hearing loss or selective mutism. You can, you can, you know, you can get the right level of specialism in place. Um, but of course, the head teacher at the level of the school needs access not only to generic speech and language therapy, but also to the relevant specialism behind that. But the key thing, and to give, I, I know, I'll give you one example, Worcestershire, where this works very well indeed. Everything is effectively joint commissioned. Yeah, so there is only one commissioning by health and education together for speech and language therapy and that's got to be the ideal way to do it. I guess we know that at the moment and hopefully in time things change but at the, at the moment right now the demand for speech and language therapy is probably going to continue to outstrip the supply just in terms of the reality of where we are but um, and, we, and we also know there's going to be probably as a result of the last 12 months more children struggling with speech and language um, issues. So I suppose what I'm interested in is, are there, what would be your recommendations for the sorts of things schools themselves can be doing? Um, not for perhaps the most acute cases where, you know, the only, you know, speech and language therapy is absolutely what's needed, but, you know, they may be picking up more and more cases of, of children struggling with speech and language development. And what, if they can't access therapists, are there other things that schools can be doing or some general good advice that you might offer? Yeah, so th th that's really helpful. And there are several different ways of looking at this, James, which, which hopefully listeners to the podcast will find helpful. At one level, there is you know, the natural concern that every parent has about their child's development. And some of this was picked up in the, um, the EEF report that, that was in the news from the BBC and elsewhere, that all children who've been not in the social context they would normally be in, you know, there will be natural concerns about social communication, natural concerns about the development of that interactivity. Um, people have pointed at the, you know, to the, the BBC's Tiny Happy People website, which we are jointly involved in, in producing the content of, which is intended to help all children with, the, with their language development. When thinking about it it's at the school level, it might be helpful to think in, in this way. Across the life course, not at any one time, but across the life course, about one person in 10 will have an identified health condition, a diagnosis, which relates to speech, language and communication. Now, most commonly, that will be something called developmental language disorder, which is under-recognised, but is uh, to do with both the way you, not just the way you express, but the way you, the brain processes information too. Then you've got... Um, children, um, autistic children, then you've got 
children with learning disability, children with um, you know, physical needs, and so on and so forth. So you've got that 10% with a diagnosis of a health condition who are likely to be able to benefit certainly from assessment and quite possibly from direct intervention from a speech and language therapist. Beyond that, you have delayed language, which relates often to situations of disadvantage. And in the most disadvantaged areas, anything up to 50% of kids can have delayed language, which doesn't relate to a health condition, it relates to that disadvantage. So we talk about universal targeted and specialist provision. Specialist where the child needs one-to-one you know, -one essentially, targeted where you are providing that health input, but universal where actually you know, what's needed is for teachers and teaching assistants and SENCOs to be providing the interventions that have been given to them by speech and language therapists. So it's not all about direct SLT in the school. And I've seen here yeah, plenty of reports um, in the last few months about particular concerns about um, children who will be starting school for the first time in September, you know, those going into reception uh, and the impact uh, particularly last 14 months have had on them I, I i have to confess i've got a vested interest having a child who's about to go into reception in september in this and you know we've seen the impact on him which is a a case study of one i appreciate but how how concerned are you about those those children who will be walking through the school gates uh, for the first time in september in terms of their speech and language development or perhaps you know are they actually it's all going to be fine and maybe we're over worrying where, where, where do your concerns lie on that I think it's important, and I, and I believe that um, National Association of Head Teachers shares this concern, that you don't end up labelling an entire generation as left behind or broken or anything else like that. No. The reality is that many children starting school in September are going to be absolutely fine. And actually, in some cases, quality time spent with parents may mean that they've been able to develop their language skills you know, through greater play and quality input. But we know. And it's back to what I said about the, 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 the health needs and, and the wider social needs. First of all, there will be a concern that some children, parents for a variety of reasons, often completely understandable, will not have been able to provide a language-rich environment at home. And because they haven't had the opportunities to interact with children and adults outside the home, in nurseries and playgroup settings, there may be a delay there which needs to be, needs to be addressed. We're also worried that there will be children with long-term conditions who would have been picked up in early year settings who may start school in September without those needs having been identified and supported, particularly in that critical preschool year. So this could then mean that there, even though most kids are fine, there will be an increased number of reception children whose language and communication schools, skills are not school ready. Um, now, there's been discussion about whether people do summer schools over the summer. I think what we, our advice to school leaders is make contact with your local speech and language therapy teams. They'll be ready to give you advice about what you can do about this you know, to, to help catch up and to help make sure. We know that school, some schools are using what's called the NELI, the Nuffield Early Language Intervention, which is, that's good, it's targeted, it's effective, it's evidence to work, but it will only work for a small number of children in each reception class. So you need to think more widely than that about um, interventions you can put in place. 
And then as a final question, and it's it's, a, it's an unfair question, so I'm going to put you on the spot here. So, um, but I'm just thinking, you know, we've talked a little bit about what needs to be done and what have you. But let's imagine you had sat in front of you, I don't know, the Secretary of State of Health and Secretary of State for Education. There are maybe even the Prime Minister. You've got all three of them there. Um, and, and you could ask them for one thing, you know, in terms of to make a real difference when it came to speech and language therapy. There's something different fundamentally the government could do. Uh, what, what, what would your priority be? What would you be asking them for? My one word, levelling up, equity of access. Um, to continue, the, um, so I mentioned that, you know, I do have a background working in politics and I, you know, earlier in my career, you know, when I was um, involved in developing manifestos for a political party, everyone would be coming to me going, here's our issue, here's why our, our issue is vital. And of course people would say, we want more money, we want more resources. Now, do you need to resource priorities adequately? Yes, you do. Um, do we think that there is a case for enhanced investment in children's speech and language? Yes, we absolutely do. But there are also always ways of spending what you've got better. If you listen to the experts and if you listen to the children and parents, you can do things better even within the existing resources. I think the concerns that we have both about the, the group that may have been missed in terms of identification um, during the last year, but also the pre-existing issues around um, deprivation are that issue of equity across the country, which I mentioned from the Children's Commissioner's report. So to use the language of the current government around building back better and levelling up, it's about equality of access to, to children, to speech, the speech and language therapy support that they need wherever they happen to be in the country. James Bowen was talking to Derek Munn. Let's bring in our second guest on this subject. And it's someone who goes into schools and therefore has had to adapt their ways of working, but more importantly, find new approaches to both old and new problems. Anna Sellers is a speech and language therapist, and she begins by talking about the changes in how therapists can work with a school and its pupils. It has changed it quite massively um, in a good way. Um, I know it's been difficult for everyone, teachers, parents, everyone, but in a good way because it means when I see clients on video camera now, sometimes I've been able to see teaching assistant with the client sitting next to them on a video call and a lot of speech, language and communication needs are about changing the adults around the child rather than changing the child. It's quite, I don't know if it's revolutionary for others to hear, but I feel like that we need to change the adults around the child. Um, and it's changed in terms of making people slow down because the class sizes have been smaller. So it's been easier um, to deal with, really. The teachers have said, Oh, yeah, I've got time to do that today, um, which is refreshing. <laughs> Would it be f a fair observation uh, that this 14 months plus, this run of time through COVID-19, when there have been things that have not been possible within the school environment or things that have had to be done, let's say, at greater distance, uh, th there must have been impacts for you and also for um, the children you're seeing because, of course, some of it, some of what you do involves uh, having to observe. Yes, 
I can't observe on the playground anymore. So children who have social communication difficulties with autism or the communication is too fast for them so they can't communicate with their peers because um, of their understanding. I've not been able to see how they are and how they interact with their peers on the playground. So you have to go by... I suppose you can look through the window or ask the teachers and teaching assistants to report back to you. But I suppose the lot, whole lockdown, because I'm not allowed to go to schools, it's made the teachers and the teaching assistants work harder for me to understand what the child's presenting like. So I'm ending up getting much more information than I got before sometimes. The impact of the pandemic on children's speech and language and perhaps children that you wouldn't otherwise uh, have seen how concerned are you Anna are are there are you aware that the the remote learning the the being away from the setting of school the routine everything and and seeing peers that that brings has it meant there are new speech and language problems yeah I've got a good example I've um, got a client whose younger sibling um, hadn't interacted anyone they are 18 months old and the postman came and as mummy opened the front door, he looked at the postman to go out and the postman said, oh, you can't go out, you need your coat. And he looked at mummy and then looked at the rack, went and got his coat. And she was like, illustrating to me that interaction, telling me that he can understand where's your coat. And she, she said it was amazing for her and her mum because they hadn't seen him. It made them realize he hadn't interacted with anyone else apart from her mum, her and his dad, for all that time, the whole 18 months of his life, practically. I think they've been out to the park and seen people and probably smiled, but children do, who are two years old, do tend to look at you like, hmm, who are you? What are you? Because mm. <laughs> they've been in lockdown. That's alarming because of the social... And then also with your mask, if, if I do sessions, I have to drop my mask sometimes, but converse to that is I'm getting the client to look at the adult member of staff or the parent to see their mouth shape for the sounds but the fact that the sounds the image of the sounds is gone I don't know if you've noticed when you go in a shop sometimes you feel like you have to drop your mask Mm. to hear someone because you've lost the lip reading yes very much so yeah absolutely Mm. has your profession Anna had to find new techniques new ways of of surmounting some of these things and um and and put kind of new things in the the professional toolbox yeah the one thing I touched upon was dropping my mask to show them the speech sounds and then having to teach mum so I've sent videos to parents and teachers and teaching assistants of myself doing the speech sounds that's new like I wouldn't have done that before so that's new and it's brilliant it's really effective because I'm talking into the camera, the, the parent or the teaching assistant gives the child the phone, it's right near their face, and they can see me making that speech sound, the visual of the F sound or the S sound. And teaching, I feel like I've done more of a coat, it's like our job, I do, the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists would probably shoot me down, but it's like we're coaching now, but we can't do that entirely because we do have a very intricate job that people don't understand at all. They think we just fix lisps, but they don't. It, it's not like that. Some children don't understand language, no matter what, not to do with English as an additional language. Just they don't understand that the brain is made differently. That's all. Um, and it's not coming natural to them, but maths does. 
And whereas I can't stand maths, I'm, I'm expert in language. So it's about teaching them, the, the adults around the child to do the job. And that's the new thing in my toolbox, the massive new thing um, over the last 18 months, just, just using the adults. And it's been really positive because it actually, you're building a rapport you're getting that child to build a rapport with the teaching assistant if teachers can spare them for that long because that's another issue for another day <laughs> but um when you have got a teaching assistant's attention they're bonding with the child better because they can see what the sounds are they're looking at their face and they're doing regular work with them they only need to do up to 10 minute sessions i think there's some historic thing where you have to do 30 minute sessions every day you don't have to. You can do it in like 10 minutes, a break time, just before they go out to break, just quickly show them what your exercises are that your speech and language therapist has given you um, in some cases, because it is a massive, our job is massive. Um, we have selective mutism, stammering, understanding of language, too difficult for people. And, and then also expression and all the speech sound difficulties and anxiety as well. I mean, I've got a client who's had COVID um, and it's the anxiety that's come with that and the selective mutism, which is an anxiety. But going to school is frightening because this child had COVID like really badly for months and months and months. And they're trying to in, get him integrated back into school an hour a day and it's just not working um because covid has made this person really frightened of being near people because they had it really really bad and i've got an adult friend who had that as well they had covid and listening to her mirrored what this 10 year old was kind of telling me without words you could feel the fear a school is a massive place so the the child is terrified of going there i guess because of of the illness they suffered Imagining that what happens now within education, within the school's environment is down to you, Anna, what, what would be your recommendations? What do you think schools generally could be doing? Schools have been working really hard over lockdown, honestly, um, doing everything. I mean, they do everything. Teachers work so hard, honestly. It's exhausting to watch. Um, so basically try and integrate it. I would wish that speech and language therapists were based in schools. I don't know why we're based in the NHS and the hospital-based system. It's not a medical model. It's communication and, it's, and, and it should be in the school. We have so many not attending appointments at clinic. But if we were in the school, they wouldn't not attend because it would just be part of their educational programme and that's what it should be. Um, and also go easy on yourselves, teachers, because honestly, it's a hard job and they do really work hard. Every single school I've visited, and I've been in this job since 2001, they are amazing. They work really hard. They don't only have speech and language therapists telling them what to do. They have physios, occupational therapists, their managers, um, school nurses. There's so much. Social workers, you know. It's, it's unbelievable um uh but basically you can try and integrate it into the curriculum work so if a child's having problems with understanding make language visual by drawing mind maps or using pictures cut out of a magazine and glue them so they're physically doing it in a scrapbook um like for example you've got an apple in the middle picture of it and then you can have a 
a mind map branch that shows the tree that it came from or all the other things, a carton of juice, you know, start expanding their vocabulary by being creative visually because some children don't learn with just words. A lot of adults don't. I'm very visual. It's learning what kind of learner they are, isn't it? Thank you so much to Derek Munn and Anna Sellers. The School Leadership Podcast is, as you'd expect, on all the major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Radio Public and more. What we do need, if you're able to help and able to spare some time, is feedback and reviews. It doesn't matter if that's through email to us or our social channels. We're always happy to hear what you're saying and suggesting. And at NAHT Edge and at NAHT News is where we are on Twitter for some of those conversations. NAHT is a professional association and union for school leaders. NAHT Edge is the part of our association aimed specifically at aspirational middle leaders. To discover more about the benefits of being an NAHT Edge or NAHT member, go online to nahtedge.org.uk forward slash join or www.naht.org.uk forward slash join. Our next episode will be with you in a month's time. Click on subscribe and it will automatically come to you. It's as easy as that. In the meantime, look after yourself. We'll catch up soon. From NAHT and NAHT Edge, the School Leadership Podcast.